I, I want to reiterate for you and for the parishioners, um, just an invitation about to come to this conference, Cross Vision Conference. Uh, you can get there by going to renew.org. That's with a K, R-E-K-N-E-W. It's because the ministry is about rethinking everything you thought you knew. How clever. Um, so um, it, it'll, be, it'll be good. And for those who have read the book, either Crucifix or the Warrior God, or you're going to read the book Cross Vision, that'll be coming out August 1st. Um, the conference will go beyond the book. Uh, it won't just be a reiteration of that. Uh, we'll be addressing questions that arise and issues like how, do you, how does it affect the way we teach children the Bible? And how we, because that's kind of an important issue. Um, and what implications does it have for like peacemaking and social justice and restoration and all sorts of things. So it's going to take it into all sorts of new areas. I'm Greg Boyd. I'm a teaching pastor here. And it's really good to be here with all of you. We're in the series uh, on, uh, we're calling Moving Pictures. Uh, and just finding like biblical truths that pop out now and then, all too rare, but now and then, uh, in Hollywood movies. So the word for today is repent. Oh, yes, repent. What a joyful word, isn't it? Uh, To prime the pump, I'll just read one passage here. This is from Romans chapter 2, verse 4. And it goes, do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. I want to start with by looking at uh, the, 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 the movie clip we want to use for this message. Uh, it comes from one of the classic books of all time, which came into a classic musical of all time, which became a classic movie, uh, and it's Les Miserables. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's French for the miserable ones, which is very appropriately named because everybody in this movie is miserable. Uh, but uh, it's, a, it's a great story. So uh, the, uh, to set up the clip that we're going to watch here, there's this guy named Jean Valjean. I love these French names. Jean Valjean, Marie. Uh, and Jean Valjean has been in prison for 19 years because he stole some bread. And if he wasn't a hardened criminal when he went into prison, he was when he got out of prison. But he gets out of prison now, and, and uh, because he's a con, uh, no one wants to give him any work, and no one wants to give him any food, and he's running out of options. But then he runs into Monsignor Mariel. And so we'll pick up the clip at that point. Isn't that good? Powerful scene. My favorite character in the whole thing was that church lady. <laughs> well, could you be sainted? Yeah, she just says, undies up in a bundle. Okay, we'll get to the... Uh, uh, to the movie here in, in a little bit. I, I first want to just mention this about the word repent. The word just means to turn. It's metanoia in Greek, to turn. Uh, it doesn't mean that there's a lot of tears that go with it, though there can be. It just means that you do an about face. In fact, when an army would be marching in a certain direction, if the captain wanted the army to, to do an about face, he would cry out, metanoia. We, we, we say about face, but they would say metanoia, turn. And so it just means you make a decision to turn. You're going this way, and now you're going to go in a different way. But the term has come to mean quite a, quite a lot of other things, more than turn. When we hear, you know, just think for a second, when, when you hear the word repent, what do you think of? I, what would you add to that? What, what comes next? Repent or else. A lot of us get like images like this. When you hear the word repent, people holding up posters. God, Jesus, it's hell without him. How can, it's so clever. Uh, repent, trust Jesus, obey his commands, and you know, repent or you're going to burn forever in the lake of fire. Or, you know, there's this 
We used to have this guy who'd come up to the University of Minnesota. I don't know if he still does it or not, because this was 30 years ago when I was at the U of M. Probably more than 30 years, actually. But uh, he'd come along Kaufman Union. He'd come up from the south someplace. Sometimes he'd bring some friends. And he'd stand on this wall at Kaufman Union and just preach to students as they're going by. And it was always like, repent or you're going to hell. Repent. The wrath of God is upon you. The Antichrist is going to take you and going to mark you and you're going to get your head cut off. And, and it was this repent or just doom and gloom stuff. Um, and, and I, I don't recall anyone ever coming to Christ through that ministry. Uh, there was a lot of you know, taunting and laughing going on. But uh, that's kind of how we associate. We, we, the, the, word, the word repent is, is, is kind of an ominous word, isn't it? it, it it's taken on a connotation. I think when most people think about repentance, the need to repent, it's associated with three things. One is fear. It's a fear-motivated thing. Repent to save your soul. Repent to save your neck. You're in deep trouble. You better repent. So it's a fear-motivated thing. Uh, secondly, it, it's something that changes God's attitude towards you. The wrath of God is upon you. You're in deep trouble. He's going to sock it to you. But if you'll repent, now he loves you and you're his child and you're saved. And the third thing is it changes you. It changes your status. You were a lost reprobate, but now you're saved. Now uh, the cross applies to you. Now you know, you're okay with God. So it, it, it's fear-based, fear-motivated. It changes God's attitude towards you. And it changes your status. Um, I want to submit to you that that doesn't quite capture the biblical concept of repentance. At least it doesn't nuance it in the right way. Uh, the biblical concept of, of metanoia is not an ominous thing. It's a joyful thing. It, it's it's, a, it's an, an invitational thing. It's part of the good news. And the show, the story, Les, Les Mis really gets it, really captures this. The thing that changes Jean Valjean is not the fear of the law, the judgment of the law. It's not the fear that he's going to have to face the, the wrath of Monsignor Mariel. If that sufficed to change Jean Valjean, then he wouldn't have stole the, the, the silverware in the first place because that threat was already on him. He knew that that's what he would face, and it wouldn't suffice to get him to not steal. What changed Jean Valjean was when... He deserved to receive judgment, but instead he received blessing. He deserved to be, receive the wrath of, of Monsignor Mariel, but instead he received kindness. Not only did this, this, this bishop not press charges against Jean Valjean, but he, he gave him the silverware that he had stolen and then threw in two candlesticks on top of it. And it was that act of kindness that changed Jean Valjean. It was, what changed him was when, when he deserved to be treated like an enemy, but instead, Monsignor Mariel treats him like a beloved friend. What changed Jean Valjean was that, that, that he, he would have went to prison for, for, for the rest of his life, but now he is made a free man, and he's got some wealth to get his feet on the ground, and that act of kindness filled him with gratitude. And throughout the rest of that movie, you see him just being owned by that gratitude. He was a changed man. But the motivation wasn't fear now. The motivation was in response to this act of kindness that had been done towards him. When I think back on my life, the things that changed me, that set me in a different direction, it was never the harsh words, it was never the judgments, it was never the threats. In fact, judgments and threats, they tend to just lock you in on where you're already at. They solidify you. When grandma says to me at the age of two, Greg, he's a bad boy and... Bad boys don't get presents. See, that was locking me in on something. 
In fact, every you are statement spoken by an authority, parent, grandparent, or whoever, becomes an I am statement in a kid. So parents, those who care for kids, take great care of what you follow up you are with. Because the you are becomes an I am. And that locked me in and, and, and kind of gave me a destiny. I'm going to now live filling that out. Or when my father in seventh grade, and God bless him, he just was angry and he deserved to be angry, but I don't think he should have said this, that uh, he has to go to the police station to pick me up because I stole some stuff. And, and, and on the way home, he says, I'm so ashamed to have a son who's a thief. And that's where it stopped. And, and that didn't make me want to repent. It didn't make me want to, you know, change. In fact, it... It made me want to flip him off. It, it, it angered me. It solidified me in this rebellious attitude that I had. Judgments all tend to do that. What changed my course at different points in my life, there were acts of kindness, words of kindness. There were things when, when people speak a new identity over you. That's, you know, that's what Monsignor Mariel does with, with uh, Jean Valjean. He, he speaks a new identity over him. He puts back that hood. You, you are, you, you've promised to be a different man, even though he hadn't yet promised that, but he's identifying him as that. You, you thought you were my enemy, but I'm saying you are a brother. You, you thought that you're a thief, but I'm saying you are going to be a kind and compassionate man. Um, he announces this new identity of me. You thought you deserved punishment, but in fact, I'm saying that you deserve blessing. And that's what changes Jean Valjean. So it is in our life. It, it's the words of kindness. I, I've shared this, this story before, but it bears repeating. Where, you know, up until the age of 16, I saw myself as a pretty stupid kid. I was in remedial everything, and I was just checked out of school, kind of a C student, sometimes Bs, but that was it. Um, and, and I was just an odd kid, I didn't quite fit in, and I was in trouble a lot. And the only future I could really envision myself at the age of 16 was drug, sex, and rock and roll, because that was the only thing that didn't bore me. Uh, everything else just, it just bored me. And um, so I'm in this class. And they start talking about, uh, we were discussing Morton uh, Thornton Wilder's uh, play, Our Town, which is still my favorite play in the whole world. And, and, and we start talking about life and death and things like that. And I was interested in that, so I started participating, which I didn't do very much of. But I started debating this stuff in class. And I ended up debating the whole class and whatever. And after the class, Miss King, I love Miss King. God bless her. I was able to share this with her before she died uh, two years ago. But she, she took me aside and she said, Greg, uh, have you ever considered uh, becoming a philosopher? And I said, what's a philosopher? And she said, well, it's someone who thinks deep thoughts. And I was like, did she just accuse me of thinking deep thoughts? <laughs> I, 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 I'm stupid. I, I, I'm stupid. I, I, I don't think deep thoughts. But she said, you know, listen, I'll tell you what. And then she showed mercy, she showed mercy towards me because I was flunking in this class. I hadn't turned in a single assignment. Uh, and she said, she reminded me of that. She goes, you are flunking. Uh, but I'll tell you what, I'll make a good deal. And see, this also was a good motivation to start try, trying out this new identity she had just given me. Uh, she says, if, if you'll just read two books, go to the library and pick out any two philosophy books that interest you and write a report on those two books, well, I'll, I'll base your grade on that. So I took the deal. And I went, for the first time in my life, into the library. <laughs> And looked in the card catalog. I couldn't figure out how to do that. But I, in fact, I, I got frustrated, so I just went to the section where they, they had philosophy books, and I just kind of went you know, that way. And uh, picked out a book, started reading it. I, and the minute I started reading it, I couldn't believe that people wrote about this stuff. 
I mean, finally, I found something worth paying attention to. Uh, and and it, I can't, like, this is, this is stuff I think about all the time. I was always thinking about, you know, why do people follow the crowd and what's life all about and is there a purpose to life uh, and, and is there life after death and, and what's the basis of our judgments on good and evil and, and, and things like that. I was always thinking that stuff. And I would sometimes talk about it, but everyone thought that I was just a stoned out druggie, you know? And oh, there was Greg talking about existence and stuff. But see, Miss King didn't think that. She's, everyone else thought that says you're burned out, but uh, she says, oh no, you're a philosopher. And those two are not necessarily mutually exclusive. So, <laughs> so I read this book and it, was, it just amazed me. It just amazed me that, that you know, people could write books like this. That was the first book I ever read cover to cover. Um, now, I had given a lot of book reports, but never on books I actually read. I, I, I would hear about them. I'd ask other people about them. I gave the same book report four years straight in different subject areas on the book Hiroshima, and I never even read that book. Uh, my sister told me about it. So there you go. Not the best student in the world. I hated reading. Okay, so first time I read books cover to cover, but after that, see, I couldn't stop reading. I became a compulsive reader. I just fell in love with this. My favorite thing to do was read. And, and then I ended up getting an A in this, this class. First time I ever had gotten an A in anything. But then from then on, I hardly got anything other than A's. This, this, this new identity that she had pronounced to me, the words of kindness, it just changed the direction of my life. It, it, was a, it played a significant role in my deciding that I'm going to quit taking drugs. It, was, it played a significant role in me finally coming to Christ. Um, now, see, she could have taken me aside and said, Greg, you're flunking this class, you stupid stoner. Yeah, you know, you drugged out idiot. She could have done that. But that wouldn't have changed me because I already thought that about myself. Yeah, see, that just would have further locked me in. But it's when there's a kindness, an act of kindness, uh, a, a word of kindness, a word of affirmation, a, a new identity given, that's what changes the course of our lives. And this is how God brings about metanoia, brings about change in our life. It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. The kindness of God. The mercy of God. That's what makes us want to change. Now, I, I want to unpack this kindness of God and show how it produces change in our life. Because this is the kind of thing that just, I think, we, we so often get this wrong. Um, and I'm going to do this by discussing a, a, a passage that I talked about 15 or 16 months ago uh, in a series we did on evangelism. So if you were here then... Uh, you might recognize part of this. We're going to lift a part of that sermon and plug it in here because it really fits very well. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a passage that is just monumentally important, theologically dense, with beautiful, beautiful stuff. I'll read the whole passage, and then we're going to pick it apart. Here we go. It says, For if we are beside ourselves, if we're crazy, Paul says, it is for God. But if we're in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of God... For the love of Christ urges us on. That Greek word there, seneco, um, urges is, is a pretty tame translation. Most translations have things like compel or even controls or forces. It's a strong word. The love of Christ just compels us because we are convinced that one has died for all and therefore all have died. What's up with that? And he died for all so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. From now on, therefore, in light of all that, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him, we, we know him no longer in that way. 
So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. Look, behold, everything has become new. This is just a wild, incredible passage. Okay, so get ready. Buckle your seatbelts. So Paul here, he's been accused of being crazy. He had this nice, cushy life going for him. He was a leader among the Jews. He really got respect. He had it going. He had a good life. And then at some point, he gives the whole thing up to become a Christian missionary. His life is not so cushy anymore. In fact, he's had constant hardship. He's, he gets shipwrecked. He gets beat up. He gets thrown into prison. You know, his, his life is in danger a lot. And people look at this and they go, what are you, nuts? Are you crazy? There's something cuckoo about you. And Paul responds by saying, well, maybe. But if we're crazy, we're crazy for God. But the degree that we're saying is for your sake. What he's saying here is that, that yeah, it looks, it looks a little nuts what we're doing, but, but you just don't understand. The love, of, the love of Christ just compels us. I can't help it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm captivated by this love. I'm gripped by this love. It defines me. And I got to do what I got to do. It's the love of Christ that caused, called, caused Paul to change the direction of his life. He wasn't a missionary because he was trying to get points with God to earn his way to heaven. He wasn't a missionary because he was afraid of getting zapped. No, he's a missionary because he he, he'd fallen in love. He'd been gripped by the love of Christ. And love can make you do some crazy, crazy things. Folks, that, that is the fuel that the kingdom's supposed to run on. Fear is not an authentic kingdom motivation. Now, maybe fear got you in on this thing, but it's an immature motivation. And, and God will take whatever he can get, okay? So if, if fear is what got you to Christ, praise God for that. But see, as you, as you get to know him, if you're really getting to know him, that fear motivation is going to be replaced by love, and perfect love casts out all fear. The Bible says that, amen? Perfect love casts out all fear. And so what, what, what motivates us to do what we do should not be shame, it should not be fear, it should not be manipulation or anything else. It ought to be just the love of God that we've received from Christ and that we have for Christ. And, and when a person gets gripped by love, see, love can take you places fear never could get at. Fear couldn't, couldn't change, change Jean Valjean, but, but love did. Love did. And so it is for all of us. Uh, fear, fear just doesn't fundamentally change the core of who you are. In fact, it can't just lock you in further. But when you, when you get a glimpse of the love that God has for you, and the, the, man, it begins to ignite something in you, and, and you change courses. You start going in a different direction, praise God. See, this is why, folks, it's so, so imperative. At the center of everything that we are about, if you're a Jesus follower, listen to this. At the center of everything we're about, there's got to be a time that we set aside regularly to just bask in his love. Enter into imaginative prayer and let him love on you. Let him say to you all the things he said about you in scripture, but see him say it, see it in his eyes, feel it in his hug, hear it coming out of his mouth, and spend time just letting him love on you, and that rekindles the love for you, for him. Uh, that, 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 that's at the center of everything. Because when that love begins to grow dim and becomes just sort of, you know, lackluster, well, that affects everything in the kingdom. Then you just have to start relying on other kind of motivations. And that's just not what it's about. It's love of Christ, Paul says, that compels us. And then he tells us one of the reasons he loves Christ. He says, for we're convinced that if one died for all, then all have died. And that's an interesting statement. This, this statement, in fact, this whole passage is, I think, so beautiful that the majority of Bible readers can't take it. Uh, they're so used to calling mediocre news, or even ugly news, the good news. Oh, we got good news. You're going to hell. Uh, they're so used to calling ugly news, 
good news that when they actually hear the good news, it's too good. So they have to kind of like tame it down a little bit. It can't possibly mean what it's saying here. If one died for all, then all died. This is what makes Paul just so in love with Jesus. What does that mean? In some sense, everybody, everybody has died. In fact, everybody died when Christ died. That's what Paul says, right? If one died for all, then all died. Now what died was the old, the old humanity of every person that ever existed. Past, present, and future. It died with Christ. What died was the, 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 the fallen self of every human being. Uh, past, present, future. What died, what was put to death, is the sinful humanity of every person. Past, present, and future. When, when Jesus died, that died. What died was everything that could possibly separate us from God. Every obstacle that could possibly alienate us from God. It's been crucified. It's been abolished. It's been extinguished. It's been annihilated. It's done with over and out. All of that was taken care of for everybody. The cross changed everything. The old self, the guilty self, the self that was in bondage to Satan, it was put to death. All violence, all hatred, all rebellion, all idolatry, all oppression, all perversion, all greed, all racism, everything, everything that's contrary to the will of God was put to death on the cross. It changes everything for everyone. The cross didn't just change things for a few people who then repent, and now it all applies to them. No, it changes everything about everyone before anyone repented. If one died for all, then all died. That happened 2,000 years ago. Now, see, most people don't know that. Um, but we who are in Christ should know it, and it should change the way we look at everything, including ourselves. It should, there's a new creation now. It came about through Calvary, and we should be the ones who see this. And that's why Paul goes on to say this. He says, from now on, therefore, okay, if one died for all, all have died. So for that reason, we are going to regard no one from a human point of view, Sarks. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there's a new creation. Everything old has passed away. Look! Just look, everything has become new. Now, sarks here is, is uh, uh, the word literally means flesh. And it, when it's applied to a human body, it does mean flesh. Your flesh, right here, sarks. But when it's applied theologically, um, it, it means just a, a flesh way of looking at the world. It, the, it's a way that humans normally look at the world. It's looking at the world as though what you see is all there is. All right? It, looking at the world as though everything spiritual didn't exist or wasn't true. So Paul once looked at Christ from a human point of view, from a Sark's point of view. And what he means by that is he once saw him as just an ordinary person. He was just a human being. Uh, a first century Palestinian Jew got crucified. There's a lot of them, and Jesus was one of them. To look at Christ from a strictly human point of view, from a Sark's point of view, is to look at Christ as though it was not true that he was God incarnate. As though it was not true that, that he's the Savior of the world. As though it was not true that, that uh, he'd come to give his life for all human beings. As though it was not true that he was the definitive revelation of God. So that's the Sark's way of looking at Christ. And to look at human beings in a Sark's kind of way, in a, from a human point of view, is to look at human beings as though what you see is what you get. As though it wasn't true that Jesus died for all. As though it wasn't true that they had already died. As though it wasn't true that their old humanity is dead. As though it wasn't true that their sin is dead. As though it wasn't true that God's no longer holding their, their sin against them. It's, it's, it, it, 
And Paul is saying, no, we can't be looking at people in that way. We've got to look at people in the light of who they actually are because of Jesus. The truth is that the cross changed everything. And so we're to see everything and everyone in the light of that. That's why Paul says in verse 17, So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. Look, everything has become new. He's talking about a way of seeing here. Now, the passage... Usually it's translated something like this, because we're not used to the real good news, and so we have to make it less good news. So we say, well, if you are in Christ, then you are a new creation, and everything's changed for you. But that's not what Paul says. Uh, he says, if anyone's in Christ, look, there's a new creation. He, the whole passage is talking about how we look at people. It's talking about your perception. What lens do you look at? And so in light of the fact that all have died, Paul is saying, look at everybody as though everyone had died. As though all their sin is gone now. Look at people as they are in the light of Christ. Behold, there's a new creation. Everything. He doesn't say, you are new. He says, everything. It's true that you are new. And that's good news. But the reason you are new is because everything is new and you're part of everything because the cross has changed everything. And therefore, it's changed you. Praise God. And so, folks, when we look at people... Um, we, we, we're not to look at it from a strictly human point of view. Uh, everything across chains has got to be our lens. When we look at people, we've got to see unsurpassable worth. Uh, they're worth Jesus dying for. That's why I always teach around here ad nauseum, I know, but we have to keep on repeating it. We're only allowed one opinion of people, unless they've invited us in on an intimate relationship, and that is that they were worth Jesus dying for. Uh, they have unsurpassable worth. And when we see and notice things about them that are maybe are inconsistent with the will of God, we see some sin in their life, some faults in their life, some ugly stuff in their life, well, we're to remember that that was put to death 2,000 years ago. And maybe they don't know it, but we know it. And so ignore it. Ignore it and just affirm what God affirms, and that is that, that they are new creatures in Christ Jesus. Everything has been changed. Everything has been changed. Cross changes everything. See, this is the kindness that God has shown us, shown the world. He's demonstrated this. He puts it all up front. And he does it now to bring about a change. Uh, this is the kindness that's supposed to lead us to repentance. And Paul says this very thing. He says this. And he died for all, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised uh, from the dead, or embraced for them. He did all this so that we would have a metanoia, and stop living for ourselves, but fall in love with him, get gripped by the love of God, and turn. So Christ doesn't do this. He doesn't say, here's the deal. If you'll turn, then I'll love you, and then I'll die for you, and then I'll change everything about you. No. What he does, he says, I love you, and I give my life for you, and I've changed everything about you. Will you now just turn and accept that? That's the good news, folks. Will you turn and accept that? Will you, in light of the beautiful truth that I have revealed here and created on the cross, will you turn from your ugly falsehood and live in this beautiful truth? See, this is, this, folks, our vocation in life, if you're a Jesus follower, is to help people embrace that. Just embrace the truth that, of what Christ has already done for you. Embrace the fact that God already has this loving attitude towards you. And this is what Paul says. All this is, is right out of Paul. He says, so we are ambassadors of Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. In light of the fact that he's forgiven you, and when Jesus prayed that prayer on the cross, Father, forgive them, that prayer was answered. It's been taken care of. Um, but but uh, uh, Paul's saying, in light of that, will you accept that? Will you be reconciled? See, it's like this. The one thing that God 
couldn't do on the cross, the one thing that God couldn't do on the cross is um, make people believe in him, make, make people accept this truth. God will not coerce people or lobotomize people into having correct ideas about him or accepting the reality. Uh, and the, the, the reality he's inviting us all into is this reality of a loving relationship with him, and love has got to be chosen. And so the one thing that's left open here is will you accept your acceptance? Will you accept what Christ has done for you? And our, 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 our privilege, our vocation, is to help people do that. Here's what's real. Will you just accept that? Here's what's real. Will you just accept that? But there's got to be that acceptance for there to be reconciliation. It's like, if I have a relationship, if I have a relationship with you, and um, you do something that, that, that causes a disruption in our relationship, I can forgive you, and I should forgive you. That's just releasing you. I'm, I release you. I'm not going to be holding a grudge against you. But that doesn't yet restore a relationship. Forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. For reconciliation to happen, you have to, A, stop doing what you're doing that disrupted the relationship. You have to repent of that, turn from it, stop it. And secondly, you have to admit that you need forgiveness and then receive that forgiveness. And now we can have a restored relationship. That's how it is with God. We disrupted the relationship by our rebellion, putting ourselves in Satan's bondage and all of that. Uh, God forgives us. He doesn't hold that against us. That's what Paul says. He's not holding trespasses against anyone. That, that, that's all been destroyed and abolished. The enemy's got nothing on you now. From God's side, it's taken care of. From God's side, it's done. This is why you find in Scripture these, these curious passages where, where Paul will say things like, like, as all were in Adam, so all are in Christ. As everyone died in Adam, so everyone is made alive in Christ. Now, some people take that to mean that everyone's guaranteed to be saved. But I have so many other passages that just don't agree with that. I, I, I don't go there. What I think it's saying is, is from God's perspective, he's claiming everybody. He's doing this kind of Monsignor Muriel on everybody. He's giving a new identity to everybody. He's claiming everybody. He's got a bear hug around everybody. He's saying, you're mine. You were all in Adam. You were lost. You were in bondage to Satan. But I have freed you from that. I've destroyed the sin. There's no, none of that to account for any longer. I'm not holding your trespasses against you. From God's side, it's all taken care of. The question is, will we say yes to that? Will we accept that? Will we turn from the things that separate us from God and now be reconciled to God? And so the, 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 our, our privilege is to help people be reconciled. We are ambassadors of Christ. Say, be reconciled to God. Now, the thing is, it's possible to live against reality, to, to, to defy reality. People do it quite often. And the thing about that is that whenever you defy reality, um, you lose. Uh, you're free, perfectly free to believe that gravity doesn't apply to you uh, and go up in an airplane and jump out of the airplane without a parachute. You're free to do that. But you'll learn in about three minutes, depending on how high you are, uh, that uh, reality wins. And it will be painful. Whenever we defy reality, it's painful. You keep running up against a brick wall, you're going to get hurt. The, the task of life is to get our thinking to line up with what is real, not try to get the real to line up with what we wish was real. Uh, and, but but we, we're free to defy reality you want. So here, God creates this new reality, and it's a beautiful reality. The reality of all that the cross has accomplished. But people are free to defy that reality if they want. They want to be Lord of their own life, keep doing their own thing and all that. They're free to do that, but it brings pain, and it brings destruction, and ultimately it's tragic. Now, there, there's a place for pointing out the, the negative consequences of defying reality, but the emphasis of our message is not on that. Uh, it's not on emphasizing the ugliness of the false way of living. It's to emphasize the beauty of the true way of living. Uh, in light of all that Christ has done, 
accept your acceptance, be reconciled to God. You always thought you couldn't be forgiven, but we're here to say you're forgiven already. As we look around and we see people from, from, from in light of the cross, not from a strictly human point of view, but from in light of the cross, we can say you, you thought you had to carry that all your life, but you don't. It was taken care of 2,000 years ago on the, on the cross. You, you, you thought you were going to be estranged from God, but you, you, you're not. It's already taken care of. Will you just be reconciled to God? You thought you had to find life by trying to chase after stuff and get acceptance and being popular and getting a lot of money or driving a nice car or whatever it was, but you already know on some level, don't you, that that's not working. There's an emptiness there. That's because you're defying reality. And whenever you defy reality, it creates pain. All the pain in your life is because you're not living consistent with the reality. I'm inviting you to embrace the reality because it's beautiful and it's good and will change it from the inside out. Be reconciled to God. Turn from that false way of living and embrace this true way of living. You know, the mercy of God is such that it's just too beautiful. It's... God didn't just pay for your sins. He blew up the whole economy. <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's like he didn't pay off your debt. He, he rendered debt meaningless by blowing up the whole economy. So money means nothing. And if money means nothing, you can't be in debt. So also God just blew up the whole sin economy, which is why Satan doesn't have anything on anybody anymore. There's, in fact, Paul says in Colossians 2 that, that when Jesus was crucified, everything that was written against us was nailed to the cross. This is the kindness of God, folks. Everything was, was nailed to the cross. And that's why, he says in Colossians 2.15, that he disempowered the principalities and powers. He disempowered them. Why? Because the only thing they ever had on us was our sin. Our sin puts us in captivity to them, puts us in bondage to them, makes us slaves of them. But Jesus Christ rendered the whole thing. He just blew that sucker up. <laughs> just blew it up. It doesn't matter. Now that whole way of a sin accounting system, that Inspector Chevert, in this, that, that lawyer... Accuser of the brethren has got nothing to do anymore. It's like if money, if money stops having any meaning, well then, then bankers are out of business. <laughs> so also, if accusation stops having, if there's no more condemnation, if there's no more accusation, if sin's been taken care of, if every obstacle's been removed, Satan's got nothing to do. Except lie. And, and, and people who believe the lies empower him. But for those who know who, who you are in Christ, he's got nothing on. That's what we sang earlier. There's no condemnation. If you're in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation, praise God. He's taking care of it all. That's the kindness of God. And now the one thing that's left undone is this. Will we align ourselves with that reality? Turn from our false ways of living, our self way of living, and now live for the one who gave his life for us and, 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 and it was, it was raised again. The kindness of God leads to repentance, praise God. Ladies shared this with me last night as we were leaving the service. She goes, it's curious. Uh, but she was like, you know, that, that thing that you said about blowing up the whole synechronic system, how we look at people, we're not supposed to, you know, just don't pay attention to the ugly stuff that you see and stuff like that because it's all been rendered meaningless because of the cross. And we just have to affirm that, that, that they were worth dying for. And then she paused for a second. She goes, so if Satan's got nothing to accuse us of, we can't gossip anymore. <laughs> That's pretty... If it's all rendered, what's there to talk about? It's, uh, yeah, if, if, if Satan's got nothing to accuse, I guess we've got nothing to accuse either. That's a rather profound uh, insight. There you go. It wasn't on my mind when I made, when I, when I made the point, but, but uh, the Holy Spirit applies it in individual ways. That's a good one. I want to say one more thing about this. Um, sometimes people think that Repentance is what you do to become a Christian, and that's the only place you ever do it. But that's not at all correct. Turning around is something that we need to make a lifestyle of. It's, a, it's an ongoing activity. You know, of course, we, we, we become disciples when we turn from our self-way of living and submit to him. 
But uh, unless you're, you've arrived and you are perfect and therefore have nothing more to turn from, uh, unless that's the case, and I'm pretty sure it's not, anyone who would think that thought, I, I can tell you one thing to turn from, and that's being self-delusional. Um, there's a, oh, no, it, it's, a, it's an ongoing thing. So Paul says this in Romans 12, a passage that I think a lot of us are familiar with. Therefore, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, there it is again, you guys, in view of God's mercy, do you know how often this happens in Scripture? It's not in view of God's wrath or because you're afraid, because he's going to zap you if you don't. It's like, come on, look, what, look how beautiful he is. And because of that, I'm going to urge you. Someone shared this with me last service. It, it's, it's, the way they put it in Greek is that the, the imperative is always based on the indicative. You know, the, 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 the let's do this is based on what you already are. In light of who you are, in light of who God is, in light of what's been done, in light of the mercy, well, therefore, I'm going to urge you to be consistent with that. And to do that, you just offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is getting our lives to line up with what is already true, getting out the falsehoods, and it involves turning from the old and embracing the new. And it's a constant, ongoing thing. To offer up your bodies as living sacrifices. Um, this is just the act of, of, of crucifying your false self uh, with all the lies. The, the self that's conformed to the pattern of this world. The world still is under deception, and so it holds out all these false ways of getting life and false identities and all of that. And the reason it's so painful is because it's living in contradiction to reality. And we're conformed to that. There's always pressure on that. So we have to continually be putting off that pattern of the world and embracing the truth that is found in Christ Jesus by renewing your mind, offering up your bodies as living sacrifices. Someone said that uh, you know, the, the difficult thing about a living sacrifice is that it keeps getting off the altar. And that's true. You, you know, you, you put it to death, but it's still living, so it gets off. And so we have to, it's a daily thing to be offering this up. Uh, it, it, what's holy and pleasing. This is our proper worship. We are, this is what Paul means when he says that, I, I, that I, I crucify myself daily. It's no longer I that lives, but it's Christ who lives within me. And then to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And, and, and as we go through life, the Holy Spirit will reveal to us, if we're listening, things that it's, it's now time to turn from that. You know, God never works at everything all at once. He allows it for, just like he does with his people throughout the whole Bible. You know, he, he gradually develops them, so also with us. There's a time where he just leaves things in place, but as you're growing, there'll be a time where all of a sudden it doesn't feel right anymore. It's time to offer that up. Uh, a living sacrifice. Repent. You're turning from that. Time to, time to metanoia this. So let's just illustrate this here. I'll close with this. Uh, close your eyes for a moment, and, and I'd like you to ask you to imagine one thing right now that you believe God might be telling you to turn from. Could be a thought process, could be a habit, could be a specific thing, or could be a general thing. But just imagine, don't think about a hundred things. This is what happens if, if like, what's, what's wrong with you? A whole list pops up, and then we do despair, and we don't change anything. <laughs> you know, do one at a time. Take it, move Mount Everest with a spoon, okay? So take it one at a time. Think of one thing and represent that. Imagine that. Get concrete with that. It's somehow represented in your imagination. That one thing. Okay, and now I want you to, all of a sudden you realize that Jesus is right next to you. And you're someplace, wherever that place may be. I'm on a mountaintop right now. I like to meet Jesus on top of Swiss Alps. So I, I'm, I'm here looking at my thing, and Jesus is right next to me. And you're doing the same. 
And now, I want you just to hear Jesus say, in light of the passage we just read, I'm not mad at you. Maybe you thought I was mad at you, but I'm not mad at you. I'm not mad. I took care of that 2,000 years ago. But you know, you can give it to me if you want. And I'd like to take it off your hands. Because I know, and you know too, that you're better than this. You're a king. You're a queen. You're radiant. You're holy. You're blameless. You're spotless. This was all done. This was done 2,000 years ago. You are not this. I'll take it if you'll give it to me. I won't force you. And I don't want it because I'm going to love you more without it. This won't make me love you more. I love you as much as I possibly could already. You're not going to get any points. I'm not, I'm not giving credits here. Uh, I just know that you're more than this. If you give it to me, there may be some consequences with this. You may have to go through withdrawals. or It may be difficult at first, but I'll be with you, and I'll work with you on this. And you'll be able to dance better in life without this. You'll, feel more, you'll be more free without this. Your life will be more incongruity without this. You won't be wrestling with that pinch of guilt when you give this up. Will you give it to me? And right now, I just want you to, if you're not ready to give that up, just tell that to him. Okay? What he wants is honesty. But I encourage you to give it up. This is offering this up as a living sacrifice. It may feel painful to do this. And there may actually be some pain that comes as a result of this. If you're giving up your cocaine habit, you're going to have some pain. But he'll be with you. And it'll be worth it. Turn from that and surrender to him. Remember all that he's done. in view of his mercy, in view of his kindness, in view of his grace, in view of his beauty, in light of everything he's done, will you give this up? You're just giving up a lie for truth. Holy Spirit, will you seal this on our hearts right now? Um, and and I pray, Lord, that, that is the enemy tries to work and get us to take that thing back, Holy Spirit, remind us that this was taken care of 2,000 years ago. We just release it to be aligned with that truth. And that, Lord, be, a, be reminding us to do this regularly, to be always looking at the areas you want to take off, the, the, the pounds of the weights that you want to relieve us from, that we carry around. Reminding us that with, with, each, with each new freedom, we are more conformed to the beautiful image of Jesus Christ. And that is the goal of everything. In Jesus' name. Would you stand? Amen. 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 If you did that, I bet you feel the freedom. There's a freedom. It, it feels good. It's good news. Metanoia. He wants to take it off of you. It feels good. If you're really used to it and you've been dependent on it, it can be, it can be difficult. But yeah, you know, it's worth it. It's worth it. I encourage us to be metanoying all the time. <laughs> be a metanoia people. Uh, would our prayer teams come up here? And if you're here this morning uh, and have any need that could use prayer, I encourage you to come up here and pray with these folks. Uh, they would love to just uh, intercede on your behalf. Don't carry that burden out alone. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, but maybe there's something pulling at your heart saying you should be, I want you to come up here and talk to these folks, and they'd love to explain to you what it is to become a, a disciple of Jesus and become a, 
part of this beautiful kingdom that's going on here. As we leave here right now, can we do it as the people who are committed to keeping our eyes fixed on the kindness and the mercy and the love of God and letting that produce whatever change in our life that God wants to produce? If you agree with that, say amen. amen. God bless you guys. Go out love the world.